everyone and welcome back to the News Agent Podcast. My name is Andrea Warmington and I'm the Senior Content Strategist at Good Lord. Today's podcast is a hot off the press recording of this morning's webinar on the Court of Appeal decision on authorised signatories and the Companies Act with Robert Bowell of Dutton Gregory. He joins Good Lord's Tom Mundy to discuss the implications of the ruling on documents such as tenancy agreements, notices and prescribed information, as well as answer letting agents questions on the subject. They also touch on the upcoming changes to smoke alarms, as well as the proposals for rental reform that were put forth in the government's recent levelling up white paper. Before we dive into the recording, a reminder that this webinar is CPD certified. So if you would like documentation that you have listened to this webinar, jump on over to goodlord.co slash newsagent. You'll find the link in the podcast description and you can still register for the on-demand version. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us um, today for Good Lord's webinar on the Court of Appeal decision uh, that that was kind of held quite a few few weeks ago now. What, what we want to do is we want to give you a really, really good deep dive into exactly what that decision was um, and what that means for letting agents um, here in the UK. Um, but I think I think before we start, I think I think we just want to we just kind of want to say that where there are over 90,000 letting agents or, or lettings professionals and property professionals um, over in the Ukraine. And what's happening right now is is absolutely awful. And I think our hearts go out um, to everyone there. And I think we should all just um, make sure that we, we do take a moment to think of the people that are out there uh, and what's going on. So um, now that now that we kind of now that we, we we have quite a few people on the webinar, I think we should we should get started. And I, I just want to start with kind of just just a little bit of an intro into what Good Lord is and and what we do. Um, we are a lettings platform that supports um, over two and a half thousand letting agents um, in the UK. We, we we support really from 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 start to finish um, in in many different ways, um, be that compliance, be that automation, um, be that referencing, or or, or or the admin that comes with changing changing um, changing tenancies and and the change of occupancy uh, that, uh, that 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 is is related to kind of um, the the um, the utilities and things like that. So. So that's what Good Lord does. Um, we, we we focus on making sure that we can support letting agents in the UK. UK. We want you to have more time to be able to um, deal with landlords and win win more landlords, um, take tenants and, and put them in properties and make sure that actually you're not spent time dealing with paperwork and things like that. So that's what Good Lord does. Um, we we are joined today with uh, by Robert Bolwell, who um, many of you will know, but I think, Robert, if you could just do a little bit of an introduction. Um, and uh, tell the people today kind of who you are and what you do. Yeah, Tom, good morning. Thank you very much for that. As you say, I mean, I woke up like everyone else did today to the news what's going on in, in the Ukraine. And yeah, I mean, you know, our thoughts go out to one of our colleagues, lawyers, probably professionals out there who are facing a really uncertain day, if not an uncertain month, if not an uncertain, you know, months ahead. So yeah, on that. But anyway, look, I am Robert Ball. I am a partner of Duck and Gregory. And, you know, for many years now, we've we've had a team that specialise in dealing with landlord and tenant stuff, you know, whether it's um, serving notices or sorting out more complicated issues like, you know, the, the Northwood case we're going to speak about in a moment. And yeah, I've been in the job for so long, I can't believe it. Um, I have to say, I have now got a beard. It's a lockdown beard, Tom. I mean, I was going to say something. like yours in a way. When we're coming into the office every single day, I have to be clean shaven, with shirts and ties and all the rest of it. Well, I saw the shirt and the tie, but yeah, I have got, I've got my lockdown beard. And it's taken 18 months to grow. So no comments about that, please. Um, but yeah, we'll have to update the picture at some stage. But that's who I am. Fantastic. We do have a Q&A if, um, and we do have a poll. Maybe we could get Robert to shave his beard by the end of it if we get enough votes. <laughs> um, okay, fantastic. So um, the, main, the main topic of today's webinar um, is the Court of Appeal decision um, that, um, that, that, that happened. Um, how many weeks ago was it now, Robert? Well, it was um, the second week in January when the hearing took place. And normally with the Court of Appeal, it's quite strange. You expect to sort of give all your evidence, hear all the legal arguments on day one. And very often, you know, you won't get a decision for weeks or even months. Do you remember, Tom, we had that um, palaver over the gas safety certificates a couple of years ago? Yeah. That was like a three-month lead-in time between the hearing in Court of Appeal and the decision. This one, this one, I wouldn't say it was rushed through, but we had the decision within a couple of weeks, which I think, you know, to everybody, 
um, explains how important the court system saw this particular case. Because yeah. the problems we're going to discuss have been rumbling on now for over a decade, but well, hopefully they have been sorted, we will know exactly where we are going forward. Yeah, definitely. But I, I suppose that it's actually related to legislation that's been around for way longer than that, to be honest. It's, it's dealing with the Companies House Act. Um, and, and we're also going to be talking about smoke alarm regulations um, and what that means means for you as, as, as letting professionals. Um, and then we're also going to be talking about the, um, the, the levelling up white paper as well that, that has been released and, 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 and if there is any kind of implications and what, and, yeah. and what that means. So um, I, suppose, I suppose kind of kicking off, really, um, it would be great if you could just run us through what has happened. Um, I think there's been a, a lot has been in the, in, in, in the news on this. Um, it's been going on for quite a while. So, yes. um, you know, <laughs> many of us have grown beards in that time. Um, and <laughs> if you could just run us through the timeline, Robert. And, and yeah, I mean, well, the time timeline starts in 2014. But I want to get back before that, because we're here talking about something called Section 44 of the Companies Act 2006. Now, that didn't suddenly hit us in 2006, because the Companies Act we had in that year was more or less a mirror of the Companies Act that had gone beforehand. So the whole problem about execution documents has been rumbling around for literally, you know, sort of 20 years or more. Now, the Northwood case is what brought it to a head. And for those of you who don't know, Northwood operates in a sort of a franchise type system, but their individual offices operate on two, two different levels. First of all, Northwood franchisees, and this one here is Northwood Solihull Limited, they would actually manage properties on behalf of landlords and put tenants in. So the agreement, if you like, was technically between between the occupier as the tenant and the owner of the property as the landlord. But that's one model most of us subscribe to. But what Northwood also do through their franchise operation is they will allow their franchisee to take a tenancy in their own right and then effectively sublet the property. And I assume Northwood will take a, a percentage turn between the rent they're paying out to the landlord, the owner, and the rent they're getting in from the tenant, the occupier. And that's the situation we had here in 2014. Northwood Solihull Limited, and the limited is the key bit here, Tom, they had already taken the tenancy of a property in Birmingham from the owner, from the ultimate landlord. And what they did is they then sublet it. And of course, when they sublet it, Northwood Solihull Limited, and again, I'm stressing limited bit, they became the actual landlord. Now, the timeline begins in 2014. Now, that's important because most of you will remember that we had a bit of a sea change in the documentation you had to serve and you had to give to a tenant with the Deregulation Act of 2015. And that came into force on 1st of October 2015. So that is an important demarcation in this case. But the tenancy that Northwood granted to Fern and Cook, the actual occupiers, the, the tenants of the property, began in July of 2014. It was Pardon the expression, it was, Tom, a bog-standard AST. There was a deposit paid, the deposit was registered as it should have been, the prescribed information was completed and given to the tenant. Okay, so at the start in 2014, everything looked perfectly normal, but the landlord was technically a limited company. The landlord itself had arranged for one of its staff to actually put a squiggle on all the forms like we all do every single day, and nobody thought any more of it until we get to April of 2017. Now, by that stage, Northwood, as the landlord, had already served the tenants with a Section 8 notice back in the previous March. And that Section 8 was for interest. And of course, it came before the Birmingham County Court, and it was quite clear there was going to be a bit of an argy-bargy over whether that Section 8 notice was actually valid. And the argument went... Well, the landlord in this case is a limited company. It's not clear whether the Section 8 notice was being served by Northwood Solihull Limited as the landlord, or was it being served by Northwood Solihull Limited in some sort of agency capacity. But either way, it's accepted that we didn't have a full execution of that document as might be required by certain bits of the companies that we'll, we'll come to in a minute. So that was April of 2017. Now, the judge who heard that, um, you know, at the county court level, a district judge is totally and utterly bound by precedent. And he had argue arguments on both sides. He made a decision. And ultimately, that decision then went to a higher judge. It went to his honour, Judge Williams, county court judge, again, bound by precedent. Until eventually, the arguments became so complicated that both sides appealed the decisions they had, both the district judge in the April of 2017 and the hearing, the judgment they got for the 
chemical and, full circle in January, in January 2020. Specifically, Robert, kind of what 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 were people arguing about? Um, what was the what was the kind of the issue um, that the tenant was arguing with the, with with the, the, well, the issue? The issue was over execution. Now, if we go back to the basic problem, the Companies Act of 2006 said, right, if a company is going to execute a document, it's going to be done in certain ways. You're going to need two directors, you need the company seal, you need directors. There's a whole panoply of what you have to do to execute a document. Now, we all know that. We've lived with legislations before 2006 and the latest variation of the Companies Act. The problem, Tom, is the legislation didn't actually say what or which documents required execution. So if you go back to you know, your Oxford English Dictionary, if you execute something, that in English means you're completing it, you're signing it off. Now, if you think about it, if you want to create a contract between you and a limited company, that doesn't even have to be in writing. So to say you have to execute something which doesn't even have to be in writing, it's completely nonsensical. I mean, yeah. you may not realise that when you go to Sainsbury's to buy your Rice Krispies, that is a contract between you and Jay Sainsbury's PLC. You don't actually get a written agreement for the box of Rice Krispies. So you don't need to execute the contract. But the legislation was very, very unclear. And since we had that legislation on the statute books, there have been cases after cases where usually it's a, it's, it's a tenant pressure group. I won't say my favourite charity because most people know who my favourite charity is. They would stand up in a county court and say, right, we have got a Section 21 on behalf of a corporate landlord. It has not been executed. It's therefore invalid. Now, many of those decisions were rumbling around at the sort of the very grassroots district judge county court level because yeah. a lot of people didn't want to take on the cost of fighting this all the way to a higher court, which is not necessarily bound by precedent, but can do, you know, the, the appropriate thing. Now, okay. the Northwood case was probably, in fact, certainly was the first case where Northwood Solihull Limited, the franchise in the Northwood group, said, no, we're going to fight this. They were supported by Northwood um, head office, as it were, the franchisor, and they decided to take it all the way through to the high court in Birmingham in December of 2020. Now, when it came before the High Court, the judge there acknowledged that it was difficult answering that question, well, which forms have to be executed by a company? But what he did is he looked back at previous cases in the Court of Appeal and said, OK, we have this one case from several years ago where in a slightly different context, different forms, different scenario, slightly different context, the Court of Appeal originally said, well, if a document is so important that it can only be completed by the landlord, then we think it's one of those documents that deserves execution. And that was the basis upon the decision that was made by the judge in Birmingham in December of 2020. Now, if you apply that rationale, look at the forms that were dealt with in this particular case, and there were two forms. The first was a Section 8 form, basic rent arrears, pay up or else type form. Now, is there anything in legislation, Tom, which says that that form can only be signed off by a landlord? No, there isn't. I, I mean, no. I mean, we all sign Section 8. I sign Section 8 every day of my working life. There is nothing in law which says it must be signed off by a landlord. So on the first point, did Northwood Solihull Limited as the corporate landlord did have to sign or execute the Section 8 notice? And the answer came back, a resounding no. But by the time we get to December of 2020, there's another form which the court has been asked to look at by the tenants. And that form is the prescribed information, not the prescribed information we talk about under the deregulation, you know, the, the gas safety and the rest of it. This is the prescribed information you have to give to a tenant within 30 days of getting the deposit when you register the deposit. It's a form which basically says this is the landlord, this is the tenant where your deposit is. And there is a certificate of truth on that form. And the legislation. Uh, which went through originally, said that the only person that could sign that statement of truth endorsed on your original prescribed information for the deposit was the landlord. So, again, applying the rationale that the judge used in the main decision in Birmingham, if we're saying that the only person that could execute, sorry, sign off on the prescribed information was the corporate landlord, then 
it meant that as night follows day, the judge found that the prescribed information served in 2014 was not validly completed because he was a corporate landlord in the form that the corporate landlord had to complete personally, and it hadn't been executed by two directors or a company seal like Section 44 required. So in December of 2020, we had this rather odd situation where the judge was saying, Section 8 notices, nah, just sign them off, absolutely fine. But prescribed information before the Deregulation Act came into play, no, that's an important form, it's got to be executed. So if you like, the decision in December of 2020 didn't really please anybody. Okay, yes, the landlord had won half the battle, but yes, the tenant had won half the battle. And that was the point that had to be decided by the Court of Appeal last month. And that took up several days of legal argument before three very senior judges. And we got the decision handed down last month. Okay, fantastic. Um, And I'm sure that was very expensive for both parties involved as well, um, taking it all the way from from the county court. Well, I mean, it was and it wasn't. Um, Yeah, I mean, Northwood Solo Limited, the franchise, they were supported by the franchise or Northwood Head Office. But it was also a case that had a sort of crowdfunding element to it. Um, David Smith, who some of you might, might recognise the name, he was the lead lawyer on this, and he went to he went to Property Mark, and yes, Property Mark put some money in. He went to a number of the national chains and said, "Look, this decision is so important for the entire industry. Will you please all contribute?" And basically, they all did. So, if you like, that's where the funding came from from the landlord side. I have to say, Tom, that you and I paid the costs for the tenant because, as in all of these cases, go all the way tend to have legal aid so you know win or lose the tenants way it's got paid thank you very much and you and i as taxpayers we effectively footed the bill well great well let's not dwell on that for too much um but i, I suppose i suppose just to kind of summarize so so i suppose we it, it sounds like there was a bit of a perfect storm of, of of scenarios here that that led to something that could be quite kind of monumental for for for, for letting yeah. professionals so i suppose if we if we if we go on to the the next slide and um, I think we, we'd love to do a little bit of a poll just 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 to, to kind of read the room. Um, and uh, the question the question that we're going to put out, um, which I'd like you to answer, is: Do you do you actually know? Do, do, do you the people um, that are that are signing these agreements actually know um, if you can sign on behalf or who can sign on behalf of, of, of landlords? So if you could just kind of put your answers in, and then we'll we will we'll we'll see see what what the result is. Um, but I suppose okay. So there were there were a few other details though. I think um, which I think were quite quite important uh, to pull out. There there were there were some errors on the on the documents as well. Because I think I think when I was reading the 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 the, the kind of the transcript, actually they 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 scored through the the wrong name on the on the prescribed information. Um, yeah. So there was a bit of confusion around who was actually signing, um, which probably made it a little bit easier for the for the for the the, the tenants that lawyers to, to to pick it apart. Um, but I think. I think I think I think we do we have our answers through we do fantastic so um we don't have quite a split room we've got 73% of people um know who can sign documents on behalf of landlords and and, and 27 um don't so so hopefully this is going to be really helpful for that 27% um and and so let's let's like dig into this a little bit deeper um what what was actually decided um and um who who what documents do you need to to be executed well if you remember the case in Birmingham which um, the court will be able to deal with. The case in Birmingham, the judge there said, right, I've got this earlier case from the High Court and from the Court of Appeal, which says you look at the nature of the document. How important is the document? If it's a document that can only be signed by the landlord, then if your landlord's a corporate body, it's got to be executed. In other words, two directors, company seal, et cetera, et cetera. If it can be signed by anybody on behalf of the landlord, anyone who's got the appropriate authority, then it doesn't have to be executed. It can just be signed off. And that was the decision the Court of Appeal looked at last month. Now, the Court of Appeal took a completely different approach. They said, OK, we appreciate what the guy in Birmingham did, but we think that is probably wrong. We want to go back to some basics. And the basics are, number one, if you have an appointment, if you've been signed off as the agent for a landlord, whether it's a corporate landlord or an individual landlord, that should be enough. You can act as an agent for that person. And it's long been an established principle of English law that if you've been properly appointed as an agent through your T's and C's, you can sign a document. So that was the first bit the Court of Appeal laid down emphatically. 
Court of Appeal also looked at the bit that worried the first judge in Birmingham, the bit that said, if you're going to sign off prescribed information, under the original rules before the Deregulation Act, it was only the landlord that can sign it. Now, the Court of Appeal said that's not really right. Even though that's what the regulations suggested at the time, there is this principle in English law that a definition which is used in regulations has got to be the same as the definition for that word in the principal legislation itself. So the regulations for this prescribed information said, yeah, it should only be the landlord to sign it. But if you look at the definition of landlord in the original deposit legislation, which is called the Housing Act of 2004, that defined landlord as the landlord or a properly appointed agent on their behalf. So the Court of Appeal took a completely sort of, um, you know, sort of went off at a tangent and said, no, we think that we've all been interpreting the original prescribed information regulations since 2007 when they came in. We've been interpreting them wrong. So at a stroke, they turned the whole case on its head and they said effectively, no, as long as you, the agent, have been properly appointed by a corporate landlord, you can sign on that landlord's behalf. And of course, in Northwood Solihull Limited, that extended not just to appointing um, the, another company as an agent, it also extended to appointing an employee as an agent. Mm-hmm. So if you have been properly appointed by a corporate landlord, essentially now we are not too worried about all this Section 44 stuff that's been rumbling away in the background. As long as you've got that authority and you've got it properly document, documented, you've got a paper trail in effect, yeah, Section 44, I'd like to think, is something which is now way in the past. Okay, so I might say, but can't the tenant appeal? Well, yes, in theory, the tenant could appeal, but a couple of things. Number one, you've got to get permission to appeal. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, when the Court of Appeal makes decisions, okay, it's it looks at precedent, it looks at previous cases. But unlike the High Court and unlike the County Court, it can actually look at the wider implications of what their decision will lead to. And I think here, I'm not saying they decided what the outcome should be and then worked out how to get there. That would be wrong. I think they were very conscious of the fact that, you know, in our industry, it is nonsensical to expect either a corporate agent to execute a document. I mean, poor old countrywide, if they've had to go down that particular route. And it's also nonsensical to expect a corporate landlord to execute documents when they've appointed an agent. So I think it was very much a common sense approach that the whole industry had been waiting for and welcomes really with open arms. Okay, fantastic. So, so I suppose just to kind of just to kind of simplify things, because um, I, I'm 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 just a simpleton. Um, we've got um, we've got section forty three, we've got section forty four, um, and section forty four that is for very serious documents that must be ex- executed, and you know it's prescribed that they must be executed. Um, and then we've got section forty three, which is you know a lower bar to sign documents. Absolutely, um, and it's if you you know if you've got authority, it's more about authority. Um, there's no, there's no, n- nothing prescribed that it must be executed. We can sign as a business um, and a professionals. We can sign these things. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you look at section 43, I mean, basically says, if you're an agent, you can sign. Interestingly enough, if you actually go to, I think it's section 43, 1B, it says that your authority to sign on behalf of a company, on behalf of a landlord can actually be implied. Yeah. Now I'm sure that, is going to be of interest to employees because, you know, I mean, you know, you, Tom, you work for Good Lord. No one's actually giving you a bit of paper saying you are authority to sign on behalf of Good Lord. It's implied because your job title and where you are. And I think the same would apply to any employee of an agent's office. What I don't want to do is to suggest that an agent has implied authority from any landlord to sign anything. You've got to have proper T's and C's in place, which make it absolutely clear how far your authority goes. You've got to have that paper trail behind you to fully protect you. Don't necessarily rely on one word in one bit of legislation which says your authority can be implied. No, you always want to protect yourself. You want that paper trail in place. Okay, so is is it right to assume that as long as I have a, a, a good terms of business with my with my landlord um, and um, my employees have an employment contract and uh, yep. kind of in, in a in a, a relevant position so let's say I'm a negotiator and yep. I, I and I and I and I'm 
you know, trying to find tenants and I, I'm trying to sign agreements. Um, I, I have that implied authority. Um, and, you know, it might not have explicitly been put in writing that I can sign these documents, but I have that implied authority. I can sign ASTs. I can sign um, Section 8 on behalf of, of my landlords. Absolutely. I mean, life has got so much simpler since this last month's decision. But what I would say is you can check your bits of paper. Yes, obviously, you're going to have your terms of business properly in place, signed by your landlord. Um, but also, I mean, you mentioned it, Tom, employment contracts. Uh, in, in theory, um, if you start work for a business, you know, tomorrow morning and you're getting a salary, you're an employee. What the law says, you are supposed to give your employees a statement of the main terms of, of your employment contract. Now, you know, if you're a receptionist, do you have authority to sign something on behalf of a landlord? Well, probably not. But it's that probable, it's that, it's, it's that uncertainty you've got to take away. So, you know, what you need to do is when you take somebody on, make sure there's a proper employment contract in place, make sure it's quite clear in the paperwork what their authority is. But of course, you know, when you join an organisation, rules come rules go things change you might get promoted and at every step along the way i mean it's easy for the big boys with hr teams it's smaller agents that have the problem but you know when somebody's role within the office changes just ask yourself if you're one of the employees one of the directors of the company have i now updated the paperwork for that particular employee to reflect his or her new responsibilities because if you haven't done that you might be relying on this implied word in legislation which yeah. you know is, is not good to be honest so, so it sounds like there's still actually a bit of ambiguity, at, but a really, really simple way for, for letting agents um, to, to get rid of that ambiguity is just to document things and, and maybe even have an internal charter that says actually lettings negotiators can or they can't sign ASTs um, internally yeah. and, and then, you know, make sure that that's public and, and then they, they, they would in theory have that authority. Yeah, okay. you, know, you need to know where you are. You need, you need certainty. Okay, fantastic. Um, and then I suppose we've, we've actually got a question um, that's come in that's, that's that's related to this as well. So I think I think it'd be good to um, good to pull this one out. So when signing a tenancy agreement, this is from Claire. Um, when signing a tenancy agreement on behalf of a landlord, we are signing um, as as the name of an agent signing, say David Jones, um, and they're signing in the landlord box. Um, David Jones is our agent. Is it correct? Um, uh, and or do we need to adjust this and sign say David Jones? On behalf of the agent, um, kind of, do we do we do we need to do we need to put on behalf in into the quest, into the into the signing box, or is it okay just to sign as the person? It tends to be okay. It all depends on your AST. Um, most ASTs will actually identify the agent somewhere. You know, on page one, the landlord's agent is David Jones. Now, if you've done that somewhere in the agreement, and it's quite clear to someone reading the, the paperwork at the beginning that David Jones is the agent, then I'm fine, and it's just David Jones. If it's unclear, if we haven't got David Jones, the agent, mentioned anywhere in the agreement, and suddenly their signature appears on the last page, well, my question is, who is David Jones? At that stage, I agree, you need to qualify. You need to say David Jones, agent for and on behalf of XYZ Landlord. But usually, with most agreements now, your agent's name is embodied on page one or page two because you're claiming the rent or whatever you're doing, or you're the section 48 address, you know, the address where the landlord can be contacted by the tenant, come, come, come what may. So look at your AST, but it's got to be clear somewhere in the paperwork who David Jones is. Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, let's 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 go let's let's go forward a little bit. Um, I think we actually have a question from James. Um, do we know if the tenants remained in the property for the entire process? Um, I think you mentioned that actually one of them did, uh, but actually yeah, one of them did. Other, other, them other, did. others left. Yeah, I, you see, you think about it. The, the original possession claim was on Section Eight. It was ex, you know it was rent arrears. Surprise, surprise, rent arrears. Well, of course, if you suddenly get a ruling from a court to say that the prescribed information that was given out within that thirty days was invalid, what does that trigger, Tom? That triggers a potential penalty or a, not exactly a fine, but a civil penalty, whereby the landlord might have to compensate the tenant with up to three times the deposit for not getting the regulations and the service absolutely spot on. Well, of course, if you've got a claim for rent arrears, but you've then got a counterclaim from the tenant for three times the deposit in compensation, well, one cancels the other out. So, yeah, the tenants remained in that property forever and a day. Now, you might say, well, in that scenario, why wasn't a Section 21 thought about? Well, of course it was. But what's one of the prerequisites for serving a Section 21? 
is getting all your paperwork right. Yeah. Now, yes, you could have reserved the paperwork, I guess, but that is almost like admitting you're, you're going exactly. wrong in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah, the tenants were still there. Um, last I heard, I think they were, or well, the remaining tenant was paying rent. But uh, I may be completely out of line here, but it was probably housing benefit universal credit. So, yeah. you know, the landlord's position wasn't getting any worse than it was already. But, of course, with all these cases, you don't want to be what I call a test case yeah. because the legal costs of being a test case far outweigh anything you might be losing in rent arrears. Okay, so let's 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 move let's move forward um, to the next table. We've actually we've actually pulled together a little bit of a table to to, to make things nice and and, and simple um, and go through each kind of each document, each key document. Um, and if there are any other documents that people want to um, to ask about, please do put them in the in, in the questions. Um, but I suppose I suppose we've got we've got tenancy guide, we've got AST, we've got prescribed information, and then we've got all the sections as well. Um, I think what what I'm hearing from the from 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 you, Robert, is that actually all of those can be signed um, by anyone that has implied or or, or explicit authority. Um, they don't need a company seal. They don't need two directors and things like that. Is that is that is that right? Well, yes and no. I mean, by and large, yes, it is. But remember, if we have any tenancy agreement for three years or more, what's special about something over the three year mark? It's got to be completed as a deed. Now, with a deed, yes, it's one of those few cases where you do need execution. So if you like, under Section 44 table, where it's got AST, it's almost like tick, but in brackets. I mean, how many of us do three-year ASTs? Not that many, to be honest. And, of course, one of the reasons is stamp duty land tax, because if you actually have a three-year term, if the total rent during that three-year term is above the stamp duty land uh, tax threshold, tenants paying tax. So in many ways, it's far better to give someone a two-year agreement with a renewal clause or whatever than go for your three-year. So with that one qualification, Tom, that if you've yeah. got to it by deed, yeah, absolutely right. You can forget Section 44. It's, it's, it's history. Okay, that makes our lives a lot easier. Um, I suppose. I suppose. What, what happens if? Um, and this is this is actually my question, not uh, coming in from the chat. But um, what happens if a, a two-year tenancy turns into a, a three-year tenancy during the term? Let's say it renews. We don't need to go and sign a deed for that, do we? No, the execution is all down to the document you're signing at that time. Interestingly, if the Inland Revenue want to claim it's a linked transaction, they could go back and reassess the tenant for stamp duty land tax, but. I'm not joking, but I mean, how many tenants are aware they might have a tax liability? How many tenants actually pay the, the tax in the first place? Um, so, yeah, without one caveat, no. If you're signing a 12-month renewal agreement, it's a 12-month. It's not a three-year agreement. So you're not worried about you know, execution again. Got it. Cool. And and I, I suppose we've got quite a good one here, and this is probably quite relevant to to lots of um, kind of business owners. Um, let's say you're a director um, of business, and you don't actually have an employment contract. There's no there's nothing in writing. Um, do you, do you have authority to sign under Section Forty Three? If you're a director, yes, you do. That's one of the things that companies act, and you'll probably have you'll probably have what's called a memorandum and articles of association to your company, which is like the constitution of a company. And in there, yeah, a director will be signed, um, authorised to sign virtually anything. Um, obviously, if you want to limit a director's ability to sign, when you're setting up the company, you might tamper with the constitution. But to be frank, that never happens. If you're buying, you know, <clears throat> a £100 shelf company to start operating tomorrow, you're not going to spend a fortune tinkering with the constitution. So if you're a director, yes, you've got implied authority under the, under legislation. As an employee... Well, you might have implied authority depending on what you do as an employee. Now, again, I mean, if you're if you're a receptionist, you're not going to have implied authority to sign a check for your employer. You won't have authority to sign an AST on behalf of your employer's landlord. So it's it's just a case, as I said earlier, of certainty. You know, a negotiator might, shall we say, probably does, but isn't it better just to have that in writing somewhere? And you know, about the direct not having an employment contract. You may be a director, but if you're an employee, you have an absolute right under our legislation in this country to have a written statement of the principal terms, just like a tenant has a right to a written statement of the principal terms of their tenancy agreement. So heaven forbid if you don't have a proper AST, but if you don't, they're still entitled to that minimum statement as to the rent, the landlord's name, et cetera, et cetera, and employees get similar rights too. Okay. Um, and, and there was a key 
the key key kind of um, mark in the sand um, for this case. It was the the Deregulation Act in 2015. Um, we've got some yeah. questions coming in um, on that, which is is what about uh, prescribed information that was signed before um, the the Deregulation Act? Does that need to be signed in in line? With, you know, if that wasn't signed, um, no. I mean, the, the Court of Appeal sidestepped that whole issue. Um, I don't know if you remember, when the Deregulation came out, or came into force on the 1st of October 2015, it was a big line in the sand, as you say. Three years after it came into force, it effectively got backdated to apply to all tenancies that have been signed you know, since the beginning of time. That has been challenged in other, other courts for different reasons. But the Court of Appeal sidestepped that by saying, we'd all been misinterpreting the rules since the 1st of October 2015. And they said, even though the regulation said the prescribed information could only be signed by the landlord, if you look at the definition of the landlord in the original Housing Act of 2004, that said a landlord equals a landlord or their agent. So unless there's something totally weird about the prescribed information you did sign back in 2014, 2013, the general answer is no. Um, because the Court of Appeal sidestepped the entire question. It was a lovely way around the problem. They didn't then have to think about the legalities of backdating something to a time before the 1st of October 2015. So, you know, nice thinking on the part of the three judges in the Court of Appeal. Fantastic. Um, I, I suppose we've got a we've got quite a quite a poignant ones for us really because um, we focus on, um, on on electronic signatures and, and e-signing. Um, does does this all apply with uh, electronic signatures? Yes, it does. Um, you know, we've we've got no problem with that. Um, we need also bear in mind that we all talk about signing an AST. There's no legislation which says an AST has to be signed. We have this concept in English law, what's called part performance. So in other words, if you give someone an AST, they then pay you the rent, you give them the keys, even though there is no signature on that document, the idea of them moving into your property, paying rent, you give them the keys, that suggests there is a tenancy in existence. And if there's nothing else, a court's going to say, well, what was the paperwork that was given at the time they moved in? And if there's an AST there without a signature, the courts are probably going to say, fine, that's the agreement which binds these two parties together, even though there might be one signature missing. When we have problems with electronic signatures, um, are really with witnesses and deeds. And there is a move to change the regulations, you know, in, in, in the coming years. But at the moment, it's probably safer if you do have one of these three-year-plus agreements, which has got to be by deed to get it properly signed and witnessed just so you're totally 100% clear. But otherwise, no, we're all using electronic signatures now. If you get a letter from me from my desk, I can't remember the last time I actually signed my name. I just press a button, which is terribly sad in a way. But there you are. That's progress. It is not even on invoices for me, Robert. Um, anyway, no. um, so I suppose I, I think we can we can we can probably move on. There there are a lot of a lot of questions coming in on this, and I think we we, we might have time at the end to to um, to answer a few more. Um, but let's 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 cover some of the other points. So um, so there's some changes coming in um, on smoking carbon monoxide alarms. Um, do you want yeah, to just run through those and make sh- and kind of let us know what, how that impacts our, our agents? Well, I mean, the problem we've got at the moment, Tom, is you don't actually know what the changes are going to be. I mean, the government department, a whole load of consultation exercise, which as you see from the screen, actually ended over a year ago. But we still don't know what the changes are going to be. We do know, however, that all the rules that we have to do with the private rented sector are suddenly going to apply to social landlords. I know it sounds a bit strange, but, um, you know, first day of a tenancy, we all go into property and we push that button to test the alarm. Social landlords didn't have to do that. We've got to make sure that we have a smoke alarm on every floor or story of a building. Social landlords didn't. And, of course, we now have to have a carbon monoxide alarm in any room where we're burning solid fuel. Now, you know, until the regulations get changed, social landlords were able to ignore most of that. Now, they're going to be up there with us, which is a good thing. I can't really understand why these rules didn't apply to social landlords from day one. But that's the basic we do know about. We are now talking, however, about making sure there is a carbon monoxide alarm in any room where we have burning going on. Not just solid fuel, but if we've got a gas boiler, if we've got um, you know any sort of combustion going on, there will have to be a carbon monoxide alarm in that room. Why, when the original regulations came in a couple of years ago, 
it was limited to solid fuel. I've got no idea at all. But now it's going to be sort of more sensible. Every room where we've got combustion has got to have a carbon monoxide. It doesn't apply to gas cookers. And I think the reasoning behind that may be that there are separate regulations for cookers. And of course, you've got to do your gas safety checks every year. So that's coming to, you know, that's coming to legislation. We know that. There's also been some criticism about um, landlords trying to pass on responsibility for the maintenance of an alarm to a tenant. Now, we've all got used to the idea that if the battery goes, tenant has got to replace it. But of course, all smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms, they have a limited shelf life. They, you know, there's a little isotope in every single alarm, which after four, five or six years will expire. Um, and there is literally a sell-by date on every single alarm, which hopefully clients will pick up when they, when they do their check-ins and check-outs. What they're talking about now is changing these rules so the landlord will be responsible for maintaining an alarm. Whether that's going to go as far as saying we need landlords to change the batteries, we don't know, but there are changes coming. Um, the other thing we're not too certain about is this whole argument over hardwiring your alarms. Now, I don't know whether some of you saw a webinar a couple of weeks ago that I think Arla did to do with the Welsh changes, you know, changes in Wales big time come June of this year. And one of the things they're talking about in Wales is whether all smoke alarms need to be hardwired into a property. Now, in England, we're not there yet. Um, in England, yes, it might have to be hardwired if it's a new build, because that's what current building regulations say. If you need a license because it's an HMO or um, um, additional licensing or selective licensing, yeah, your local authority might say it's got to be hardwired in. But for most of us, you know, including my house, we have batteries. And of course, there are now systems being sold where you don't put a couple of Everettis in there. You've got a lithium battery, which will last you 10 years. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's as good as being hardwired in. But over in Wales, they're thinking about changing their regulations, perhaps to include a hardwired provision. Now, whether we do that in this country or not, I don't know, but the changes are coming later in the year. So one of the things you may want to do at that stage is think about updating your tenancy agreements, because I'm pretty sure, Tom, good Lord will update its agreement when the regulations hit, because they'll apply to everybody. Um, so just 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 watch this space. But, okay. you know, bear in mind that if we don't get it right, yeah, as it says there on, on, on your slide, Tom, you know, there, there could be fines to pay. And it's also safety as well. So I, I, I think it's, it is very important, this, 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 this change in regulation. Um, there's, there's a few questions coming in. And I, I, think, I think you've mentioned that it's too early to know whose responsibility it is to change the batteries. Um, that, will, that, will, that will come out um, in the wash. Um, but I suppose there are ones saying that actually, um, if, if it's still working, but it's past the expiry date, um, and you know, we were testing it and it's past the expiry yeah. date, is that, is that still good? Can we still no. keep using it? No, I mean, I, I mean it's like... It's like when you go and buy some eggs at Tesco's, you know, it's got a sell by date on the eggs. Tesco's won't sell them beyond that expiry date, primarily because there is a risk. The eggs might be absolutely delicious, but there is a risk to Tesco's. They're not going to take that risk. So why would you take that risk? I mean, number one, you know, ultimately you're dealing with lives. But number two, being quite mercenary about it, it's money. If something went wrong in that property, the place burned down, and you then put in your claim to the building insurers to get a payout for your destroyed property, if the insurers can find a reason for not paying out, they're going to do it. What does your insurance policy say? Does it say you should have a smoke alarm, carbon monoxide alarm? Or does it say you can have an out-of-date smoke alarm, an out-of-date carbon? No. So, you know, for, for the sake of a, a new unit, it's not worth it. Now, at the moment, if you want to go and buy a combined smoke alarm and carbon monoxide monitor from B&Q down the road, they're about £9.50. Um, okay, it might be a bit more if you're starting about hardwiring it, but it's £9.50. Why on earth would anybody take the risk. So, you know, if you're using an inventory clerk to do your check-ins, your check-outs and all the rest of it, yeah, they've got to check the, the sell-by date on every single alarm because that could come back to haunt you if you have difficult insurers and there was ever a claim for fire. And, and, and whose responsibility is it to make sure that it's working? Is it, is it the landlords or is it the tenants? Well, I mean, this is a problem. At the moment, our obligation is to test it on day one. You know, we press the button and it goes off and it's fine. After that, it becomes a little bit unclear. I think what we'll probably see by the end of the year is 
um, carbon monoxide of smoke detectors being added to that Section 11 list. Now, some of you may remember, Section 11 of the Landlord and Tenant Act, it's a whole list of things that a landlord is responsible for that he can't duck out of. You know, the structure, the roof, the space heating, central heating to you and me, the electrics, the plumbing. And I think we'll find all of a sudden smoke alarms are going to be on that list so the landlord can't duck out of it. But of course, it's like a roof. A landlord is not responsible for repairing a roof unless he knows there is a problem. So again, your tenancy agreements will say, if there is a problem with the roof, there's a problem at all, you must report it to the landlord. And the same with smoke alarms. The great thing about smoke alarms, of course, we all know when they're about to fail because you get that incessant beeping noise, you know, coming from the kitchen. So there's no way a tenant can say, oh, I didn't realise there was something wrong. So, you know, it's not going to be a question, I suspect, of agents going around every week to press the button. It's not going to happen. We press the button on day one, we test it, and then it's up to the tenant to report a problem. But if they report a problem, yeah, I, I think we're going to see legislation which says we've got to go and sort it out. Okay, fantastic. And when, when do we find out, just before we move on, when do we find <laughs> out um, more about this? Well, that's the problem. The official answer at the end of last year was when parliamentary time allows. Now, you know, this will be sort of steered through by probably Michael Gove's department, you know, the renamed Department of Leveling Up. Well, of course, he's got 101 things on his desk at the moment. We'll talk about the white paper in a moment. I mean, he's got the cladding issue. And of course, we've got Roper and we've got the um, Tenants Reform Bill. So, Whenever parliamentary time allows. To be honest, I've got no idea, Tom. But I can't believe that, A, this is going to be difficult, and I can't believe it's going to be too complicated. Um, You know, we should have had it shortly after January 2021 when the consultation ended. The only thing I can think might be holding up is perhaps a way to see what happens in Wales. I, I really don't know. I really don't know. Okay. Fantastic. I, I, I was actually meant to do a poll at the beginning of this, but let's see how good uh, let's let's see how good our, our explanation was. Um, do, ne- do people now know um, what their their obligations are with uh, smoke and, and, and carbon monoxide alarms in in, in PRS uh, properties in the UK? Let's so let's leave that poll up for a few seconds. Um, and I think um, I think our next our next topic, which we can we, we can we can run through, and then we can finish on some Q and A, um, is the leveling up white paper. Um, so um, this there's we've had a white paper out. It's it's not legislation yet, um, or uh, and it, it is quite broad. But could you just run through some of the key things and um, that, that that have come out in that? that, that yeah. Paper? Well, the white paper, the leveling up white paper, came out a couple of weeks ago. And it's over 400 pages. Now, if you read the um, summary that was put out by Westminster press officers, um, you might have thought it's all to do with Section 21, all to do with Roper retraining, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Forget it. None of that is in there. You've got to get down to page 221 before our industry, the private rented sector, is actually mentioned in any sort of substantive form. What they are saying in, in, in broad terms is they want to make life easier for people who want to buy a property oh i see we've got the poll back um yeah. tom yeah yeah I, yeah that's a relief i think we did a good job of us know what the regulations are that that is a relief actually um but say the other two percent yeah wait wait till new regulations come out we can we can catch up them but no i mean if you go back to leveling up white paper most of it is just lots and lots of information about how certain parts of the country aren't doing as well as others. we all know that you know we all, all read the press but for our industry um despite what press officers said there was nothing in there about getting rid of Section 21 notices. We're all now waiting for the Renters Reform Bill, or more correctly, another white paper, just to deal with rental reform. Now, you know, in 2019, April, I think it was, in the Queen's speech, we were told Section 21's are gonna go, okay? April 2019. Well, we're now three years on almost. Every um, Queen's speech since, she said the same thing. You know, government writes the papers, she reads it out. We should have had a white paper last summer on this very topic. But of course, remember last summer, Michael Gove was shoehorned into the department and he had a lot of other stuff on his plate. Um, white paper was going to come out before the end of last year. Now we're told the white paper dealing with that section 21s is probably going to be the spring of 2022. And I love the reference to spring, because of course, spring is a fairly elastic concept. You know, it could be May, it could be tomorrow morning, but spring, we're going to get a renters reform bill white paper, and that will deal with section 21s. Um, 
don't panic too much because Scotland, they haven't really had a Section 21 now for several years, but, you know, life hasn't stopped north of the border. What it will be, we think, is suggestion that if you need to get your property back for specific reasons, like you've got to sell it, a member of the family's going to move in, you'll still be able to get your property back. Um, what we won't see is the ability of landlords simply to get the property back on two months' notice without giving a reason. Now, Wales is going in slightly other direction. Um, Wales is still going to have what is effectively a Section 21 equivalent when they change the way they do things in the summer. But in Wales, their equivalent of Section 21 will be six months, which, of course, is what we had in England under the coronavirus legislation until last October. So Wales being a slightly different way. We do know that the new white paper and the renters reform bill will probably include some provision for a national landlord register. I mean, again, if they can do it in Wales, we can do it here. But from our point of view, what the white paper talked about was trying to um, create more opportunities for people to buy properties. The one strap line that came out the latest um, publication was, we want to turn generation rent into generation buy. So 300,000 properties a year the government's going to be building. They're going to put 2.2 billion into um, upgrading properties so that if you can't buy, you're living in a better, a better property. So all these grandiose plans but I call me a cynic, Tom, but <laughs> we have heard this before. Um, and what they want to do is make the entire conveyancing process for buying a property so much quicker and so much cheaper for those, those first-time buyers. Now, you know, I can't believe as a solicitor there's anything that my profession could do to speed up or make the conveyancing transaction easier. And I know if there are any sales agents watching, there's nothing they could do to make the situation quicker. But, you know, watch this space. Yeah. Um, a white paper are government ideas. We're a long way from an idea to a piece of legislation. We're still even further from, you know, actually getting that, that um, legislation implemented. Okay. I, I suppose, I, I think you, you touched on it there and um, and you mentioned that it's it's in Wales, it's in it's in Scotland. Um, a, a national landlord um, register. We, we've, I think we've actually got a poll on this. Um, do people do people in 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 England uh, think that it should be introduced? Um, what, what's what's kind of the, what's the read of the room on this one? Um, we obviously, obviously, it you know, it's it's been working in Scotland. It's been it's it's been it's it's been working in Wales um, or being introduced in Wales. Um, do, you, do you think it could have a negative impact um, on 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 England, Robert? Um, it depends on your standpoint. I mean, if you come from the point of view of civil liberties, it's appalling. We got to tell government, you know, that we're a landlord. Um, but let's take a step back. This is the twenty first century. Everybody should have a right to expect a decent property, and. One of the issues that local authorities have at the moment, let's face it, local authorities do the enforcement, is they don't necessarily know who the landlords are or which properties out there are rented. So as far as I'm concerned, from the social point of view, yeah, I think we should have a register of landlords. Um, whether that register should be public, you, know, you and I can go and search it, or whether it should be reserved for local authority and housing officers to, to search it, that's a different question. But I think in the 21st century, I mean, you know, goodness knows, the government can monitor what I say on my telephone, not to be able to know who the landlords are and which properties are rented is a bit of an anachronism, to be honest. So, yeah, I, I think we should have one. So perhaps I don't agree with the, was it 24% of people? No, but, you know. Definitely with the majority. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, cool. Well, look, um, thanks very much for that. And um, thanks, everyone, for their contribution to, to the polls. I think we're going to we're going to open open the floor to um, kind of Q&A. We do have a few questions that have already been submitted. But um, if anyone has some last minute questions that they'd like to kind of throw to the floor, please do put them in, in the in the, uh, in the Q&A. Um, so I think we have um a few here actually one on the um on the national um, landlord register how is it actually policed in in in, in scotland and wales and and what impact could well, that have? i'm not too on scotland um but in wales it is it, all do with rent smart wales that's the, the government agency if you like that sort of maintains the register um if you are discovered to be a landlord and you haven't registered yes there could be a fine but the big one of course is the serving of notices. And as a general rule, if you are not a registered landlord, you can't serve a notice. 
So if you think about that, that means, you know, you can't get your tenants out. You may not be able to get your rent paid on time. So that is the big sanction. I don't think, I say I may be wrong, there may be someone from the other side of the river seven watching us who will tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think of a situation where rent smart wells got knocking on doors saying, you know, are you a landlord or are you a tenant? No, it tends to be, which is a bit like us with gas safety. You know, the biggest policeman for the gas safety legislation is, is the agent who wants to serve a section 21. You know, if you haven't got the right bit of paper, you're telling to be there forever and a day. And that is, I think, probably the way the policing, if you want to call it that, could operate, you know, on this side of the River 7 too. Okay, fantastic. Um, we do have quite a few questions um, coming in. Um, I think, Kat, um, we, you, you've asked, um, do, do, do we need a deed for a tenancy that's over three years, um, not three years? Um, and and that, 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 that's quite a, I think a specific point. If it's exactly three years, is that still, is that still a deed or is it no, three years and one day? It's, it's, it's over three years. Yeah. But uh, let me check that and I'll come back to you on that one, but I'm pretty sure it's over three years. Okay. Um, and it, it, it's difficult because although that's what the law says, the reality of course, is that you still have an agreement. Um, and, you know, if you need to go to court and you didn't have a deed when you should have had a deed, judges aren't going to throw you out. They'll say, well, it should have been by a deed, but they're there, they're paying rent. And we've got this idea, of course, of, of part performance. If you can show that someone's in your property and they're paying rent or have paid rent and they've got a key, the courts will still enforce your agreement, even though technically it's not a deed. Okay, fantastic. Um, we've got another one on the um, on the um, the carbon monoxide um, alarms. Do do they need to be in all uh, rental properties with a gas boiler? I think I think we said yes. Any combustion um, any combustion device really um, needs needs a yeah. um, an alarm. Um, at, the, at the moment, I mean, technically, you need the carbon monoxide if you're burning solid fuel. You know, if you're a boiler burning chunks of wood, yes, you do. You don't if it's a gas boiler, but, you know, we know the rules that are changing. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to land with doing a bit of a refurb, what I would probably do is not only fit a carbon monoxide detector anywhere where we're burning something, but I'd probably say, well, just in case if we're going to redo the electrics, hardwire it in just in case the government go down that particular route. Fantastic. Um, we, I think, I think, I think we, we we touched on it, but it's quite a, a nuanced question here. Um, does if if a if a tenant um, rolls over to past the three years, um, does does the need to pay um, stamp duty uh, land tax? Does that apply from scratch each time, or does it accumulate over time? Um, the, the revenue have this concept of linked transactions. So if you have a scenario where you remain in a property forever and a day, and you had a right to renew that tenancy. And of course, most people don't have a right to renew a tenancy, but if you've got a right and you sign the first agreement, yeah, the revenue could, in theory, link it all again, say link transaction, add up all the rent, you've got to pay. But I've never known the revenue to go hunting for people who shouldn't or haven't paid their tax. I mean, apart from penalties, if you don't pay it or penalties if you pay it late, the real sanction for not having paid your tax is you can't produce the document in a courtroom. So if you think about it, if your tenant wants to sue a landlord, then when he produces the landlord's tenancy agreement with the landlord's signature on, he's got to show to the judge that stamp duty was paid on that original agreement, okay? Let's have the same scenario, but turn it around, where the tenant hasn't paid any rent. Well, when a landlord goes to court, he doesn't have to pay stamp duty anyway. So the judge won't be looking to see if stamp duty has actually been paid. Although having said that, I cannot remember a time when I've been in front of a district judge in the county court who's queried whether or not stamp duty has been paid. It's just, it's just not done. But in theory, I mean, it's more of a problem, shall we say, in London, where you do have, should we say, higher rents than the rest of the country. You know, there are still properties in parts of this country, you know, where you're paying four and five hundred pounds a month. You know, London is four and five hundred pounds a day. Well, obviously there, you know, there's a far bigger implication if you've got, uh, you know, a long tenancy and the rent adds up. Okay, uh, and we've got we've got one question that came in uh, actually before the webinar. Um, do 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 carbon monoxide alarms need to be screwed to the wall, or is it is it is it okay if they're placed or stuck in? No, in no, I mean, um, no, as long as they are in the room. But you know, from a landlord's point of view, again, it's risk. 
you don't really want the risk of a tenant or a tenant's child, perhaps, you know, moving a portable device from room to room. Because if something goes wrong and it can be shown there wasn't a device in that room, well, again, you could be culpable as the landlord. So for the sake of a screw and a, you know, and a, a raw plug, I would certainly try and attach them to the wall in some way. Okay, fantastic. Um, look, um, we are we we are getting very close to being out of time, and I'm very sorry. Um, well, I, I'm I'm very grateful for all the questions. I'm very sorry if we didn't get through to your questions um, today. Um, we we do of course um, do lots of webinars, and um, we will be we'll be covering lots of more topics. Um, I think um, I think there's there's, there's there's quite an interesting one uh, that, that that we may be doing on um, on the 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 right to rent checks um, that uh, the changes that are that, that will be coming out. Um, so keep an eye on um, on your updates from Good Lord. Um, but Robert, thank you very much um, for for your time today. Um, I, I do also need to, to note that um, we are releasing a new white uh, a new white paper um, that an, an ebook um, that we'll be sending out as well. Um, so do make sure that you um, you get your your guide to lettings in the law from Good Lord. Uh, but thank you very much, Robert, um, and um, really appreciate your time. Um, and thank you for everyone for watching. Remember, this is a, a CPD um, kind of accredited uh, webinar, and and this counts towards your, your training time. So um, make sure you do register it. Um, and I think we will be sending a certificate um, via email as well. Mm-hmm.